Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. Welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. This is our uh, July 2023, one of our summer episodes. Good afternoon, Chris. How is it going today? Okay, we're on number 58. Oh, is it 58? I didn't really realize yeah. what number it was. So that's pretty good. Is there a lucky 58? I don't really associate a number with 58. Does that have any relevance know. in any culture? I have no idea, but I think some cultures, uh, the number eight is uh, considered um, pretty lucky, but the only thing I can multiple eights. The only thing I can associate with 58 is 1958, which was like when the greasers came out. I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> so it's like grease that, you know, the, the Vaseline and the hair, the black leather jackets, the white t-shirts, the cigarettes rolled up in the sleeve. 58er. That's what I remember. Well, I don't remember it. I wasn't alive, but that's my understanding. Anyways, so we'll call our episode that for sure. Before this, we were discussing um, our in our joke new segment, uh, the best of the worst. So who is the worst for privacy, Chris, of all the tech companies? Uh, we've talked about this before, like you mentioned, but uh, we have a number of people who are new and so maybe it's beneficial to repeat it so we were talking about from a data collection telemetry privacy perspective of the big tech companies who's the best and who's the worst yeah no for sure and i i think uh, probably the worst by by far is uh meta or the the facebook group of companies because they basically are taking anything and everything with their uh platforms um in fact, I saw something just this morning that Jack Dorsey put out uh, for their new service that's going to be a, a direct competitor of um, uh, Twitter. And uh, in their app, they're collecting everything from your financial data to your location, anything and everything, all, all settings are enabled. And so their new service that they're going to be releasing is called Threads. So uh, I would say they're probably the worst. They're the worst. We'll make sure to tell them that. <laughs> They're the worst. Yeah, it's an interesting. Um, it's an interesting discussion to think about, right? Like where, who is the worst offender in terms of, uh, in terms of your privacy? I mean, it is valuable, I suppose, to consider. We had some yeah. debate about, you know, so Apple because they're a hardware company, they tend to sell privacy as a feature. So they have to collect a certain amount of data. Let's not, you know, we should be clear that it's not like they don't collect anything. Um, but, you know, what is the, uh, who, who, is there anyone close to them? Or was it, was it Apple or sorry, Microsoft that comes after that? Well, I, I think after what we were discussing is, so the worst is Meta. It's the biggest perpetrator. Okay. Second would be Google because their business model relies on data collection and you know, taking, and in fact, actually they just released something today as well, where they have changed their privacy uh, policy uh, because for their AI and so on, they want to be able to scrape 
anything and everything out there. And so uh, actually, I shared this article with you. Maybe I'll, I'll just put it in our our chat here. But uh, yeah, they're going to be scraping everything to build their large language model for their AI projects. So they're willing. Okay, so let, this is a good place to start. So we have a few things to talk about today. Um, but this is a good this is a good segue into the AI stuff, which is what we're going to talk about. Hey, by the way, you have an M and M mug, which I really like. Nobody else can see it. Uh, that's super cool. <laughs> yeah, it's Miss Brown. Oh, I like that. That's cute. Um, okay, so this is Google says it'll scrape everything you post online for AI. So this is this is to train its Chat GPT competitor, Google Bard. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so all their features related to Google Translate, Bard, their cloud AI capabilities, uh, they are going to go and scour the internet. And I mean, OpenAI has done the same, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, strategy as well, right? So they've built their large language model based on just scouring the internet and uh, creating the model that way. So, okay. in fact, actually, I think I read something just uh, today or yesterday that they're uh, both OpenAI and um, Microsoft, they're being sued right now for their use of, uh, yeah, right here, privacy volume violations. So uh, they're getting sued for $3 billion. So, so I don't understand why there's controversy around scraping data that people have chosen or that other companies have chosen to make public. I could see it if you had like private Twitter messages and they were going to like scrape that or scrape your iMessage account, which is not public. Um, but presumably, you know, if I think about this from like a journalist perspective, uh, if somebody says something publicly and you report on it as a journalist and like re, you know, quote them and put it in an article, you can't be sued for liable if you didn't make it up. So is what would be the argument against using all public content to train large AI models. Well, but I, I think Eric, the, I'm playing the devil's issue, advocate, right? Like I'm not yeah, suggesting no. this is accurate. I'm just curious. I, I think it just comes down to the ethical aspects. I mean, especially it's probably more clear when you look at it from certain creative industries, like imagine if you were, uh, you know, uh, an artist and you put together some uh, illustration, you put it on the internet, put it as part of your portfolio your intention wasn't to go and have that be used as part of a, a large language model to go and generate more images, which actually are derivatives of that image. And in some cases, they're actually replicating that artist's image and the artist isn't getting anything you know, from a compensation standpoint, right? But they are making something new out of existing stuff, right? It's my point is, is that like if you went and took pictures or, or drew in the style of Van Gogh having seen it, right? You're still creating something new, even though it's a mashup. Yeah. Well, and uh, these are some of those conversations that we're just talking about from an ethical and then legal aspect, right? It's uh, it's one thing if, if you were going and doing it on your own, but at a large mass scale like this, where it's just letting loose these bots to go and scour the internet and uh, compile all this information when that wasn't your intention. Right. Uh, but I, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, there isn't a kind of a a straight, um, you know, 
black and white kind of answer for this. And uh, unfortunately, the the technology is advancing at such an exponential rate that we won't be able to. I I, I wouldn't even be surprised if there is going to be no um, kind of uh, law or anything that's going to help uh, uh, put together some guy, guardrails for this. I had talked to a colleague of mine um, who does copyright stuff. Uh, I don't know if people ever want to be named in the podcast, so I, I'll just say it's a colleague. And the argument from this person was that, well, you know, if it's made public and there's public images and stuff has been shared and people wanting to use that to train AI, that's that's fine. The question isn't so much, is that okay? Is what is the copyright of the stuff that's created with the AI from that stuff? And so one of the proposed arguments is that anything that's created with publicly available images should also be public domain. Well, and, and again, like this is where I mean, that would, that would be fair because then it's not like you wouldn't be be able to sell something based on a mashup. You know what I mean? Like lock down something that you created from a free tool, from free content, uh, that's automatic. I thought that was reasonable. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if let's look in the, the music industry, for instance, uh, you probably remember uh, when uh, uh, Biggie passed away, there was that one song that uh, basically Sean uh, P. Diddy, Puffy <laughs> Combs uh, went and took from Sting. And actually, re recently, I think it was maybe, I forget, maybe a year ago or so, uh, he actually acknowledged on a, in a tweet that he pays out $5 million a year to sting for use of that, uh, just the, you know, the, um, uh, the hook or what have you, the, the sound, the music. Well, that's a crazy that amount of money. Right. Yeah. Like really, is that really necessary? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, he did, it's probably a, uh, a pretty popular song that he's making lots of money off of. So that's fair. But, uh, but again, I, I don't know. And then, uh, if you recall, Previously, right, there was uh, that Clearview uh, issue where the, they basically took a bunch of social media photos in order to build a uh, facial recognition tool that's used by the police, right? And so again, it's uh, it's just a matter of those ethical and social uh, implications of having that uh, that technology and the like. Did you consent to that to go and share all these images? To go and develop this algorithm i can see that right. i can see if like the cops use it to develop something that then punishes people um that makes sense i mean i can understand that i guess i'm i'm not I'm, i don't really i don't really know uh i don't have a strong opinion on it i just i think about this from a you know is it ethical to own like a sound or a hook Oh, I mean, you could, it's, those are natural frequencies. I mean, there's debate about this, even in like the internet space, right? About like spectrum, who owns the spectrum? It's like, well, the spectrum is a naturally occurring frequency. Uh, so there's some spectrum that's owned and some that's in the public domain. Um, and so I find that interesting. Like, it's not clear to me why uh, some things are, uh, you can charge for some things and not others. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. We're not uh, intellectual property experts by any means. So. Clearly not. But that doesn't matter in the podcasting <laughs> business. You can say whatever you want. 
Um, yeah, exactly. But, we make uh, our own radio station. God damn it. Yeah. Sorry. But it, it, again, it's interesting, right? Like, because uh, when we're talking about from, uh, you know, this, uh, uh, we started this off by talking about the the worst perpetrators of uh, data. So I, I pulled up, you know, you look at Meta. So I actually grabbed that. Uh, and this is completely available if you go on threads. Uh, so it's on the App Store preview, the data that's linked to you and what uh, can be collected. And I mean, it's it's everything. Like, why does Threads need your health and fitness information, your financial information, contact info, user content, browsing history, usage data, your diagnostics, your purchase purchases, location, contacts, search history, identifiers, sensitive info, other data. So literally, they just went through and checked off everything to go and compile that they're going to go and take and collect. And then, you know, again, I think that's because if you look at what generates the money, what is their business model? And so that's why when you look at uh, Meta, it probably is the worst uh, across all their companies uh, to the point where they had to go and basically rebrand from Facebook to Meta to obfuscate uh, some of the, you know, and just create like this uh, bit of a, a cloud around them. Um, and then Google's probably next. Right, where uh, you know this was just one aspect that we're talking about, where they're just going to scour the internet. I I don't know whether it's good or not, but uh, OpenAI has done the same thing, and uh, from there I would say probably Microsoft is the third biggest perpetrator, especially uh, given that they have uh, their own search uh, or so, uh, social media platform with Bing or not Bing uh, with LinkedIn, and then they also have their search engine uh, with Bing that they're trying to go and. Uh, integrate with uh, OpenAI's ChatGPT, and they also have their office suite of products that they're going to be integrating all of this. And then from there, we were talking about uh, the fourth, which you thought was actually uh, maybe a somewhat useful and helpful, is Amazon. Right? Well, I think Amazon, yes, they steal telemetry data, and I'm sure that they use it for their content and they do have web services i i just i would say of the companies that are the most useful and, and this is a total <laughs> eric value judgment i i was going to say if if i had to save some of these companies and let others go i would say apple microsoft and amazon provide a more valuable service than the social media and ad revenue business that Twitter, Facebook, and Google do. Yeah. From a societal standpoint, Office is awesome. Uh, you know, LinkedIn is a good service. LinkedIn Learning is a great online learning platform. Uh, Amazon has their, is a, is a storefront. And we could yeah. debate the ethics of their storefront and their warehouse workers and stuff, but it is a service that people want. I sometimes find that well, this is totally irrelevant to education. I find it interesting when I think about these companies and I think about their usefulness, it seems hard. It's hard for me to argue that the meta corporation needs to exist. Yeah. <laughs> That's just my opinion. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, just the harm that social media does people, the neuroticism that ensues from its 
the constant interaction with it, things like that. Uh, I guess that's what I mean. I know that's yeah. not really fair, uh, but that's how I feel about it. And that's my honest yeah. opinion. I don't no, for I don't, sure. Uh, you know, I just don't see that what they're doing as being a net positive where, yeah, we could debate like Microsoft, how much money do they need to make? You know, they're being taken to court right now because of the Activision blizzard for their gaming acquisition and all this stuff. And I, that's fair. That's, that's a reasonable, uh, uh, thing to, to discuss and should they do that? Should they not? But, you know, windows is like a reasonably decent operating system and office is pretty essential. <laughs> I would say my MacBook is also essential for what I do. I would never be able to use a Chromebook. <laughs> it would be impossible. That's just me. Yeah. Well, and like you say, like at the end of the day, what, um, what Amazon, and this is what we were discussing before we started, at least they're taking that data, which they don't like to share with others anyways, because they're using it to develop their algorithm right. to go and push product that you probably will want based on your search activity. Yeah. Right. I can see and why so they would I, not, they would hoard it. Yeah. And I, I don't have any issues with that, to be honest. Like I actually like the fact that I'm searching for something. I need that some, you know, that product. And it's going and giving me suggestions of other products that may be useful based on my search history. That's actually helpful. Uh, but yeah. yeah, then from there, I think Apple, like, you know, sure, they collect data too, but at the end of it, their business model is not reliant on, you know, search history or what have you. And that's why out of all, and in fact, they've actually made privacy is one aspect where, uh, you know, that differentiates themselves from all the other companies. In fact, it's, isn't it interesting, Eric, if you look at it, uh, Apple is right now, they're the only company that hasn't really talked much about AI. And yet they were early to the game. Yeah. Siri was the first personal assistant. Uh, on devices to come out. Well, I guess, yeah. And then it was, Am was Amazon Echo after? I think so. I believe so, yeah. So, but again, it's uh, it, it's one thing that if you look at it, um, for them, it isn't about, uh, uh, like their, their core thing is about privacy and there is still, uh, you know, you're paying a premium for their hardware to protect that privacy as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, they're a hardware company and their services are kind of there to sweeten the pot, so to speak. Um, which kind of makes sense. Uh, given our discussion of privacy and AI, did you want to start talking about uh, all of the stuff that we have related to uh, chat GPT, the, the never ending saga on its impact on education. <laughs> well, I, I think it's, uh, it's interesting how there's, um, it just, yeah, like you say, it never ends. Right. And so, uh, I think one aspect, this, uh, article, maybe we, we can start off with, uh, is this, uh, caught off guard by AI and you know, especially when you're looking at going and reacting to chat GPT, like for the spring, 
I'll tell you personally, I had to rethink my entire course. Uh, so from April onwards uh, until, and this was for spring semester, which started uh, at the beginning of May, I had to go and redesign my assignments. Luckily, I had support from the uh, course coordinator and department chair and so on, but uh, where we're experimenting, because our plan is to go and allow students to use artificial intelligence writers in the fall. So we're experimenting right now, but I think a lot of what uh, has happened right now is that uh, people are scrambling. Uh, and I think it's probably gonna be even worse for the fall because now you would have to go and prepare uh, and do all your preparatory work for fall implementation. And, um, you know, it's uh, uh, a lot of the information is being flagged for um, uh, being AI generated in terms of the text. Um, there's, uh, I, I'm of the opinion, and I think it's uh, reiterated, like even in that article that uh, just came out and, uh, from the Calgary Herald about um, how educators are wholly unprepared for student use of artificial intelligence. So that article, uh, I would say, is pretty uh, consistent with my views. Um, so what are the opinion. what are the main things that people are caught off guard by? Well, I mean, it's, again, I don't think that uh, the educators are equipped to go and uh, help students use it in an ethical way. And so I, unless we go and talk about the ethics, right off bat. Uh, and I think this is where almost every course is now becoming an AI course. Um, but uh, I don't think cheating is something new. This, it's always been around. But, uh, you know, again, that if we're going to go and rely on detection of AI, and this is one of the things that was mentioned in these articles, you cannot definitively say it is generated by AI. There's nobody that can go and definitively say that it is if you ask the system there's even been situations where if you ask the system it'll go and basically just say that uh, uh yes it, it was developed by me but uh, so those ai is this written by chat gpt and others those tools they don't work they well they say that they will work but there has been uh you know some false positives okay Right. And, uh, and again, ChatGPT is not the only tool out there, right? There's all sorts of tools. It's just ChatGPT and Bing and then BARD. I mean, we don't have it in Canada, but uh, barf. I mean, Bing is, yeah, <laughs> as we've heard BARF, but uh, I mean, Bing itself is in over 169 countries and it's free. Well, I and think Bing a, is the best one. I, I find it indistinguishable from ChatGPT other than the fact that there it's a little bit um uh it's a little bit i think limited in how long the answers can be yeah well and that's the issue right like because with uh with open ai with the uh, chat gpt uh they are trying to go and develop that product so they allow you to enter in more text if you go and pay for the subscription you can add in even more text to that uh, but uh, yeah, and as a reminder for people, because we, we were talking about this last um, episode, uh, or the last, not the rewind, but the one prior to that, so it would have been 56, I believe. If you want to use ChatGPT Plus for free, 
you can use Bing AI in creative mode. And so that was something that I was, uh, we, so I did for go sure. and confirm. Do we know where that, I'm just curious. I mean, I believe you, but like, where, where was that confirmed by? Uh, it was, uh, from a, uh, a professor that, and it's one of our articles as well. So, oh, okay. uh, Ethan so Mollick. It's in here. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. yeah so Ethan Mollick, uh, he's been, he's probably one of the more, um, outspoken advocates of AI and he's been, uh, as of, uh, I think probably for sure winter semester, but maybe even fall, he's been making it mandatory for his students to use AI in his entrepreneurship courses. And it's so inter I, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, if we may go back to that Calgary Herald article, so educators wholly yep. unprepared for student. It's interesting how, um, uh, well, so I saw um, Sarah Elaine Eaton speak at the conference I was at in Toronto last month. So mm -hmm. she was at Otessa. Um, and I, I asked, because the question came up about attribution and citation. And, you know, I was like, are you supposed to put a timestamp? I mean, I get a lot of questions about citation and attribution and academic integrity as a librarian. That's not, um, you know, that's well within the realm of what I do. And she yeah. felt, I, I hate, I hope I don't uh, misrepresent what she said, but my, my takeaway from her was that, uh, you know, in the future, though, like citing it would be crazy. Like, we won't do that anymore. Oh, really? She didn't I mean, that. like you don't cite grammar. I, I mean, I, I, this is when she said, uh, but like you don't cite grammarly. There's all sorts of things that we don't cite. Um, and so I guess it would just be like, you know, information that you use as inspiration. You don't cite unless it's a particular source. You would go and then follow through and cite the actual source. So that that makes sense. I found that to be an interesting argument, though, uh, that if you use something to help you create an original work that you still wouldn't cite it. Um, I, I think there's probably more to her to her answer than uh, than I'm uh, understanding, and I'm not I'm not at all suggesting that that's incorrect. I, I'm just thinking I'm thinking it through. Like, how does it differ? How does attribution differ from using a you know Bing or ChatGPT to help you write? something that you're going to then take credit and get graded for how is that different than uh how we give credit for sources that we include within things i think that's an interesting discussion yeah well and i, I guess you're right like in the sense that uh, if uh, we are using if you make it akin to something like grammarly or i don't know the spell or grammar check within word yeah, you wouldn't go and attribute that. And I think maybe it is because it is new technology right now that, uh, you know, and it's never been to this scale where it develops so much content, high quality content so quickly that, you know, we need to go and have some way of uh, at, uh, attribution for now. I mean, that's one thing that I did going. Uh, so when this past semester, when I made, uh, allowed my students to go and use it, in their in our business communication course so they could submit written work using ai writers including chat gpt or bing and others but if they did then they would have to go and take screenshots and that's what i had originally and then uh, about three weeks ago uh, they actually uh, chat gpt has come out with uh, something so as long as you do not delete your account and you don't delete that chat thread 
so the the chat conversation you can go to the left panel and click uh, a share link and it'll show you everything that generated uh, all the prompts that you put in in that entire conversation so i think going forward uh, this semester what i'm going to suggest to the students is share that link uh, given those kind of criteria otherwise i was having the students actually take screenshots and then they had to go and reflect on the process so you know how did they use the the ai writer what were their prompts what was effective or ineffective tying it back to our textbook uh, going and showing the thought process of how they used the tool. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, the biggest problem uh, as uh, even in this article that it mentions is that the AI detection tools, and this is what Eden said, have uh, not pr uh, proven to be reliable. Right. Interesting. Right, so, yeah, they're getting different results with uh, and outputs from them. And so this uh, is the... Know, again, this is the article assigning AI seven approaches for students with prompts and which is which this is uh this is uh what what is the journal uh, oh that uh oh this uh, assigning AI the seven approaches so that's something that the, that the Molex, that's different that, that's okay. what the Molex have uh uh written and so they're publishing quite a bit actually uh, so i uh ethan he's the one who's the professor um at warren mm -hmm. uh, so he, he teaches entrepreneurship his wife she's the one who's uh, teaching or uh, heading up the executive education program at the university of pennsylvania so they've been using it extensively interesting yeah, but again, their application, and this is where, like, I think uh, the difference is, Eric, uh, entrepreneurship is a, a kind of a different beast where, uh, you know, we're looking at them going and using, or the students are using them for uh, going and, um, you know, so like, I mean, here's, it's some of the stuff that was in the UNESCO stuff, right? So uh, in there, uh, they've used it as like AI as a tutor, as a coach, as a teammate, as a student, as a mentor, as a simulator. And so imagine if you're coming up with some business idea, you can go and test out some of those things. You can go and create content. I mean, with the image generators, and this is, uh, I've seen Ethan talk online uh, uh, for some sessions, and the deliverables that he's asking his students to do, like just the, the quality of response is that much more intensive. So in the past, if I was going to teach entrepreneurship, it would just be an idea and backing it up with research. Now it's not just an idea. It would be, okay, here's the brand for it. Here's the website for that product or service. Here's some marketing material. Here's my pitch deck. Here's, you know, this and that you can have renderings. You could have like all sorts of things. And so what you're demanding in terms of that deliverable, because of the, the fact that this technology is uh, so fast and developing all, all this information and can churn it out so quickly, you can get more uh, in terms of that final polished deliverable. And in fact, in some of those cases, let's say if it was a tech product that you, or idea that you came up with, their students with no tech background no programming ability. And in fact, Ethan Mollick does not have uh, programming skills. And 
they're able to, students are able to develop like websites and apps for those tech products as part of the course. So, uh, which wasn't feasible in that short time span of a semester in the past to hmm. have a fully functioning prototype. Right. It's and kind I of think raised the, the bar. Yeah, totally. But where it becomes more problematic, and that's why I think that there's some pushback, is when you have all of our assessments are written and you're going and having uh, students go and submit essays or research papers and so on and so forth, how do you go and police that, right? This is sort of the, the biggest challenge or the big issue that uh, is kind of... Uh, uh, you know, facing academia or even not just academia, even I would imagine uh, even, you know, uh, high school, junior high, you know, you know secondary school, they, you, they would probably have the same issues. There's other beyond chat GPT and uh, Bing, there's other AI writers that are being used um, uh, in uh, junior high as well, right? That I've even just recently discovered or found out uh, in just talking to some family members. So um, uh, again, I, I think, um, you know, in terms of the different approaches, people should go and check out the, we talked about this in the past, but like how um, uh, there was that uh, UNESCO guidebook and that course, that free online course, they talk about the various roles that the AI uh, you know, language models uh, can go and operate from a research standpoint. And also uh, you can use the prompts to go and assist you. And that's really what they are, their assistance uh, as part of that process. But then, yeah, from our perspective as academia, and this is where it's, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of what's happening is that, you know, this whole issue of uh, plagiarism, uh, academic integrity, which it is covered, if you think about it, uh, whether our laws and policies uh, keep pace, taking somebody's work that isn't your own is considered academic misconduct. Well, for sure. And so, so this is, uh, you know, uh, and it's mentioned in that Chronicle article, article that, uh, you know, there's professors that consider any use of AI to be cheating it is plagiarism full stop right and then you know there's uh, i think if you're going to allow people and i think this is what uh, to be honest eric like uh, some of my experience this past semester it was interesting because many students didn't really use uh, the ai writers even though i had a policy in place and uh, i i think part of it was the fact that i, I don't know i kind of use the analogy it's like imagine if uh, you're a parent and you tell your kid not to do something, they want to do it that much more, right? So now that I took it off the table and allowed them to go and use the technology, I don't know, maybe it's just like a reverse psychology thing or it isn't that cool or, psychology. <laughs> right? But many the students didn't use it. It was like very few actually used um, How would you know AI that? writing. Well, I mean, uh, because uh, of the policies that I had in place, I know, uh, you know, students weren't documenting anything. So but they could use it they and not tell you. They could have. And in some cases, uh, you know, I found some cases where they may have done that. And so I brought it up and had discussions with them because uh, they were so, uh, the prompts were not that 
well developed and those were for class exercises but uh, okay. i mean it's possible and at the end of the day all i can do is go and assess the actual submission that has been submitted to me and uh, throughout the semester we dissected and critiqued the outputs that were coming out of uh, these ai writers and they're not 100%. If you want to get maybe a C, and some people say Cs get degrees, you might be okay with that. And uh, if that's, the, I mean, at the end of the day, like the, as, um, as you mentioned earlier, we probably aren't going to be citing it in the future. I know many people in the workplace are using it, and they're not citing nothing. So they're just, uh, you know, taking that, that wor work and just putting it off as their own. So, I mean, it probably is going to get to the point where it's like that. But uh, right now we have certain policies in place. We, our objectives are a little bit different. We want to go and see if they're understanding the content and applying that content uh, and the, uh, developing those skills. So, uh, you know, I had some of those policies in place and very few students uh, actually used it uh, to my surprise. And so I asked the students, I had an open conversation with both of my classes. Uh, one was online, one was in person. And some of the responses I got back was that uh, some people didn't want to use the tools, they wanted to learn for themselves, which I thought I could, you know, respect that. And I think that came from a, a, a good place of learning. And so they wanted to you know, not lean in on, especially given that it's a business communications course and they wanted to develop their writing. Uh, there were other students that figured that my documentation process was too onerous. So they didn't want to go through and do the screenshots and reflect and then tie it back to the textbook and thought that that was too much of a hassle. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think it's uh, probably not that big of a deal i like let's say if i give them an 80 minute um, writing test even if you had to go and do all that documentation you are going to save time because that output is going to be done in let's say a minute even if you put some more prompts and refine it you're done your overall task might be done in like five minutes and then you could spend another 10 or 15 minutes just going and doing some of that documentation and reflecting so it would have cut down on the time but for whatever reason, students uh, didn't do that. Um, there's other tools out there even. So one of the things for every one of my assignments, I had an overarching uh, AI policy, uh, but uh, then I would also provide specific instructions. So for their presentations, they could use AI to generate images, but if they did, they would cite how they developed that image and generate that image. So, uh, you know, and uh, I think it's uh, it, it's something that was, I mean, for the most part, yeah, very few students, either they used it and didn't tell me, which, I mean, that's, I guess, their, uh, that's of their, their own decision if they do it. At the end of the day, I have to assess what is being submitted. Uh, but the, there were, the, actually, here, I'll just share with you. I don't know if we've, uh, I'll share with you my... A link to the course blog because I did have some students that did go and share some of their work. Not very many. I had this as an option, but you'll see there's one student that used it for the current event um, uh, assessment and documented. So I asked that individual that that student actually went and um, uh, used ChatGPT to create the summary and describes the process and so this is that reflection and tying it back to the textbook 
and so on. And so now I'm using this. Today was the first day of class for summer semester. And so I, I gave them the, this cohort of students, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, one of their peers actually wrote this. And so now they can get an idea of how you could use it. So I think that helps too. I find it interesting. I mean, we've talked about this before. I, I think back to the um, kind of the broader discussions around it. I I, I guess it, we're at a point where it's not really good enough to to write a very complex argument or a um, or a flawless essay, like you said. I suppose it could get there, but it doesn't really. It's not a creative tool, right? Like it's going to give you the most basic. I would assume it's not going to, it's not going to, at least anytime soon, it's not going to generate incredible new historical insights, having scraped all the books on, you know, uh, Jackson's presidency or something like that. I just don't see that happening anytime soon. I think that's a lot further off than people think. So the idea that somebody would go in and then have it generate these essays it seems more, I mean, I can, I can totally see it um, to prompt, and we'll talk about this, actually, this is a good segue to the prompt engineering, but to prompt um, definitions and subtopics so you can kind of follow up on sources. But in terms of like doing the essay, it seems like it would be easier just to use it as a, a real-time Wikipedia and, and then write the essay yourself. I, it seems more work than necessary to use it to get something really good unless you're just going to do a cut and paste but do i have that do i have that wrong well but i mean even doing the cutting and pasting this is where like yeah, so that was the other thing that some students uh, brought up they're like well uh, if if we discuss that grade uh if this output is not not stellar why would I copy and paste it? And I, that was a kind of an interesting conversation. And I, I don't know where students got that idea that you would just copy and paste. You would never copy and paste. What you would do is use it as a starting point and then edit it and add, you know, your own voice and your own um, uh, kind of spin to it. Right. But it, it, what it's doing is it's a tool just like any other tool that would expedite the process. So you could go and use it. Let's say if you are running into a writer's block, I think this is where it's a really good application. You're you're trying to figure out maybe a, a certain paragraph that you're having issues with. You could go and ask ChatGPT or Bing, hey, I'm having some writer's block or issues uh, uh, writing this paragraph. Can you go and put five different versions of this uh, paragraph together? It'll churn it out in a second, right? And so now you're not going to be stuck with that uh, kind of writer's block. You can keep pushing forward. And to be honest, like, again, uh, if you look at all these articles that we've talked about from, um, you know, the, some of the challenges to prove students uh, have cheated, it's, it's going to be very time consuming. This turn it in, uh, which is what we use here at uh, uh, Mount Royal, it's not foolproof. Like, even though they say that it's like 93% or what have you, it does, uh, uh, it's been criticized for turning out false positives. And so I'm of the belief that you basically, you have to kind of take the assumption that you aren't going to be able to distinguish between it being AI generated or human generated. So just take that out of the table. 
And do you really want to go and investigate? So what you got to go and do is look at the final deliverable and we'll have to go and adapt our assessments based off of, uh, you know, other aspects. And that's one of the reasons, honestly, uh, Eric, like I introduced, I do it in courses that I have full control over, but I have this current event uh, assignment where I have students just do a short presentation on something that they find relevant that, uh, you know, in terms of going and doing a presentation, you can't go and fake that. And who knows, we might even see like a, a return to verbal assessments, right? So you, you might be able to have the content, but you have to go and still deliver that content. Hmm. I think the other thing, if you think about like the that segue that you talked about in terms of the prompt engineering, <clears throat> what does that really come down to? It comes down to asking the right type of questions and framing the right, like, you know, what am I going to input into this system that is going to generate the type of response that I need? Okay. Am so I asking? Is, yeah. Well, no, and I don't mean to, sorry, I yeah, want to interrupt. Keep going. Well, I was going to say that. So this is what, what I'm getting at is that um, you, you're put, you're taking an input and you're putting it into basically a live updating database, except that instead of giving you just back a list of sources, it's trying to do a summary of those sources. Um, and then it, it's doing a follow-up, right? So it's, it's creating, it's creating Wikipedia articles on the fly, more or less. I mean, that's, that's the best analogy I can think of. So as <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the article on the prompt engineering in a second. Uh, but so that that's what you just said about you. Well, you have to know what questions to ask, right? It's not going to be a useful tool, just like using a, an academic database or Google scholar. It's not going to be a useful tool if you have no idea what to ask it. Right. So one of the that's things true. that I've, what I've, that I've told students over the years is, you know, working with databases and Oh, I can't find the answer. Okay. You know, it, you know, I, it didn't give me back whatever I could dream up. Well, first of all, sometimes the things that you want to find research on haven't been done. And so there's not, there's not going to be a lot there. Or there's very limited sources, but the, the more common reason that people get bad search results back from a database is really because the person who is inputting the prompt doesn't have the language of the people who are writing on the topic, right? So, yeah, you, you know, if you, you know, if you want to find uh, newer articles on bipolar disorder, you're probably not going to search manic depressive because that's not the definitional term in the, in the DSM anymore. There's a bunch of examples for that. And it's very discipline specific. And so you have to make this assumption. I mean, there's nothing wrong with starting with what you know and plunking it in and giving it a go, right? But you have to kind of assume that you don't know uh, the lingo or the jargon of, of a given discipline. And, and, it's, and it takes time. That's why we have, I mean, in, li in the library world, that's why we have subject librarians because they, they work with that discipline all the time. And, and then they get, you don't have to be a chemist to be the chemist librarian. I mean, I suppose it's helpful chemistry librarian, but it's, 
you get used to searching those kinds of things over and over again. And you're like, ah, okay, I see what it's being called or, or medicine, right? Now, lots of people who are medical librarians who work in hospitals and, you know, they don't have a medical or science degrees, but they, they know the lingo. They've read enough summary articles about a topic that they probably know they, they probably could, if, you know, if they're assisting pathologists all day, they could probably define things as well as any GP could. Doesn't mean that they can perform it. That's very different, but that's not their job. Their job is to find the stuff and evaluate its quality and the citation metrics and all that jazz, right? So yeah. to me, inputting things into chat GPT is very similar because if you ask it questions with substandard language, it gives you substandard sources. It, it gives way better sources if you know what you're talking about. And so to me, again, this can be here and it's a great tool, but it doesn't solve the problem. It's not a shortcut to not yeah. having done some background reading because you still have to do that before you can even start using the tool effectively, at least in my experience uh, and in my opinion. Well, let me just share with you, Eric. So uh, I think it's a good little like. So this is your segue. okay. So people can't see this. So this is the um, your this is yours. Yeah. So this, so this is, is the management the... thirty two ten business communication theory and practice, and this is your AI policy. Yeah. So this was my AI policy, and uh, I'll just go through a little bit of it. Uh, but uh, I. By the way, I tailored this. So I got uh, the idea from Ethan Mollick. So he has an AI policy. And I just kind of based uh, my AI policy around some of the things that he brought up. And it's on his blog. I mean, we can share the link to it. But um, I created something specific for my course based on some stuff that he put in place. Uh, but one of the things, like he made it mandatory. So I started off right at the top. I said, I want you to use artificial intelligence AI in this course, but I don't force you to. And the reason why I, I decided after talking to some colleagues, uh, you know, we shouldn't have to go and make it mandatory. It should be optional. Some students may not be comfortable with the technology. So that was one of the things I wanted to make it optional. And so my next line that I put in is using AI writers such as ChatGPT and Bing AI is optional, but I think it can help you communicate better. AI writers can generate high quality text on almost any topic, but they are not magic. They are not going to do your work for you. They are just tools. And like any tools, they have their pros and cons. Right. And here's what, how I expect you to use AI in this course. And I have four things and exactly what you're talking about. So the first thing was, don't be lazy with your prompts. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed with the, the verbiage that I used, I used it to go and hopefully resonate, uh, resonate and connect with the, the, the students. So I kind of use a little bit of informal uh, verbiage, but uh, it's like AI is not a mind reader. It can only work with what you give it. If you give it vague or generic prompts, you'll get vague or generic results garbage in garbage out if you want to get good results you need to give good prompts this means being clear specific and relevant you need to think about what you want to say and how you want to say it you need to experiment with different prompts and see what works best this will take some time and effort but it will pay off in the end and so again that's where that experimentation and i think especially from an academic standpoint I know some academics that haven't even tried the systems or they've 
tried it just a little bit. It takes practice. You got to go and, you know, be a little bit curious about it. Uh, the next thing that I say to the, the students is don't trust everything AI says. AI is not a fact checker. It can make up stuff on the fly. We've talked about this before. It can mix up names, dates, numbers, and sources. It can say things that are wrong, misleading, or even harmful. You need to be careful with what AI says. You need to verify any information or facts that AI generates. You need to check them against your uh, against other sources or your own knowledge. You need to be responsible for any errors or mistakes that AI generates. It works best for topics that you know something about or can learn about. And so again, to your point, if you know a little bit about that subject area, you're going to be that much more specific. Um, you know, the, the next line, we've kind of touched on this earlier. Don't pretend AI is your own work. So AI is not a ghostwriter. It can help you generate ideas, words, and sentences, but it can't replace your own voice, style, and perspective. You need to acknowledge the use of AI in your assignments. And so again, this is my requirement of them. You need to include documentation. So at the time, it was screenshots and a written reflection at the end of the any assignment that uses AI explaining what you used the AI for and what prompts you used to get the results. You need to give credit where credit is due. Failure to do so is grounds for academic misconduct, and you will get in trouble. And my fourth point was don't use AI when it's not appropriate. AI is not a one-size-fits-all solution. It can do some things well, but uh, uh, not others. It can suit some purposes, audiences, and contexts, but not others. You need to be selective and smart when you're using AI. You need to think about whether AI is the right tool for the job. You need to use your own judgment and common sense when deciding whether to use AI or not. And my last part is just, uh, I trust this policy will help you use AI in a productive and ethical way in this course. I will provide more guidelines and instructions for each assignment on how to use AI effectively on D2L. I will also offer tutorials and assistance if needed. And should you have any questions or feedback, please let me know. So that's how I kept it simple, just a one pager. And then for each one of my assessments, I have specific, like for the presentations, there's stuff on writing and then also image generation using generative AI. Uh, but again, you need to go and use this technology yourself to kind of figure out how we're going to be using it. And at the end of it, you've already probably seen this, Eric, like in Bing AI. And this is what that article from uh, Harvard Business Review uh, kind of talks about that prompt engineering uh, isn't going to be something uh, for the future because Bing AI is already, after you put in as one of the one to 20 uh, right. you know, kind of back and forth, it comes back with auto suggestions of, yeah. <laughs> Hey, do you want, do you want some more information of this? Like it gives you like three or four options. So it's already yeah. kind of helping based on, I mean, based on what you've already put in. Um, so this is probably a good, uh, summary or segue to, um, this article. So the article is from Harvard business review and it's called AI prompt engineering isn't the future. I think this came about because there was, I don't know where it came from. I don't have the source, but someone said like prompt engineers for AI can make like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year 
which I am unbelievably skeptical of, at least in anything but the immediate term. Um, yeah. But, you know, so that the article here talks about how that's not like really a future career. That's not likely. So it says prompt engineering has taken the generative AI world by storm. The job which entails optimizing textual input to effectively communicate with large language models has been hailed by the World Economic Forum as the number one job of the future. While OpenAI CEO Sam Altman characterized it as an amazingly high, lever high leveraged skill, social media brims with a new wave of influencers showcasing magic prompts and <laughs> pledging amazing outcomes. However, despite the buzz surrounding it, the prominence of prompt engineering may be fleeting for several reasons. Future generations of AI systems will get more intuitive and adept at understanding natural language, so it'll understand the alternative terms. It'll have a better thesaurus, basically. Um, reducing the need for meticulously engineering prompts. Second, new AI language models like ChatGPT4 already show great promise in crafting prompts. AI itself is on the verge of rendering prompt engineering obsolete. Lastly, the eff efficacy of prompts is contingent upon the specific algorithm, limiting their utility across diverse AI models and versions. So, of course, what you know, you can master some version of an AI and then it's updated, and then you have to throw all that out, and then it doesn't work unless you want to work on the old system, right? And so, this is kind of uh, what they're arguing. Um, talking about, you know, AI and engineering and the job of working with um, uh, these, these, in, you know, these, in, these uh, interfaces and learning how they're used so you can get the best output. And I guess you would just put in queries all day to find questions for people. That sounds like a reference librarian to me. And it doesn't well, seem, again, it, you know, that's fine. But again, that doesn't seem like a sustainable job. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, again, Eric, like that's where like there have been jobs that have been posted where they're paying like $325,000 or whatever for prompt okay. engineers. But, but again, you know, yeah. it's not rocket science. It just comes down to your experience and, you know, your willingness to go and uh, experiment with the, the platforms, every platform operates a little bit differently. In fact, there's actually platforms uh, that are, uh, you know, tailored towards research as well for academia, sure. right? So there's, there's like hundreds of AI tools. And, but I guess the issue with all of these tools, there's a learning curve and for ultimately what this whole prompt engineering comes down to. And uh, I think this article has done a good job of this. It's going and identifying uh, the problem, right? So having the problem definition, formulation, mm -hmm. uh, figuring out uh, how you're going to reframe. So when you input something and you don't get that result, how can you reframe the prompt so you can try to get what you actually need out of the system? And so it's just being a little bit more creative. Uh, and it, again, this will be probably a, uh, a skill that everybody should have. It's asking the right questions and, you know, having that kind of dialogue with um, uh, whether it's in academia or out in industry. I was told years ago that like, you know, librarians helping with search and finding stuff would be made obsolete um, because, you know, once people get the learning curve right and they figure out how to use all these database tools, they'll be able to. I've been showing people how to do this for a better part of a decade. 
I mean, it's like, it's, it does require, I think, I think like, I know faculty who are good at it and, you know, the, my, and I'm not trying to defend it as like defending my position. It's more just, you know, it, it should be something that's, that's not like a, a position. It should be like a basic, you know, it's just another database. Yeah, totally. Uh, it's just a and skill. So it's another skill. And I bet all of the things that I use, maybe I should be a prompt engineer. All the things that I do with an EBSCO <laughs> database would be totally transferable to this. Um, yeah, absolutely. But the idea is, is that should be base curriculum, right? Like as a position, it's kind of like, well, you know, there's internal research at like every major corporation. All that means is that this is just one more type of database I don't think it makes other databases obsolete. It, it's just another tool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, again, you're absolutely right, Eric. I think those skills, I mean, I look at it, uh, you know, one of your uh, predecessors at uh, Mount Royal, I mean, when I was a student, uh, Margie McMillan, she mm -hmm. taught me back in the 90s how to go and, you know, uh, put in search queries. And back then we were using like Alta Vista, that was our go-to. <laughs> And so, oh, Altavista you know, is classic. Yeah, and so that was my kind of search engine that I would go and use. And um, you know, those skills, you know, going and creating different kind of uh, queries into these databases, I still use to this day. And so, you know, that's from the the '90s until now. Yeah, data. I would say that the difference is that databases really haven't changed dramatically. So perhaps the skill set required for an AI. Um, to locate sources might be a bit different, especially if it has more like an exponential uh, growth or, you know, exponential advancements in terms of its its capabilities. Then, then I could see, you know, it requires a little bit constant, constant learning. But that's that's no different than anything like programming. You know, yeah. you, you can't learn. I mean, it's like new versions of JavaScript. You have to learn this stuff all the time, right? So I think that just that's par for the course. With any yeah. tool that's well, being updated, any op, you use an operating system that changes, and then you have to learn what things are. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out where things are, and God knows whatever version of macOS I'm running. I don't even know what it's called. Is this uh, what is this? What are we on yeah, now? They just they just changed it, didn't they? I'm Ventura. I'm still yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to find still. things I didn't understand. Uh, so I mean. I, I guess I, I feel like I'm ranting on my high horse. That's not how I mean it. It's just, it's to me, it's just a, oh, learn how to search and yet one another tool, right? Yeah. Well, and I mean, in our class, that uh, business communications course that we went through, like some of the things, some of the issues that were coming up, uh, I, for instance, like the these um, uh, chat GPT would use passive voice. It's gotten better. But, you know, that that was something that was an issue. There would be certain, uh, I think Bing is a little bit better this way where it is picking up on certain, uh, you know, whatever you're inputting and maybe it's cataloging it and tying it to your profile. But uh, there would be certain ways that I phrase things and it would, it, within chat GPT, it always changes it. And it changes it to something that I don't, that that's not my personal style. Right. Uh, it, it goes a little bit, it's not as concise, it's very verbose. And so this is where, you know, some of the things that you could do is put in a constraint. And it talks about this, you know, this constraint design. So I could go back, can you make that this uh, draft that you've 
put together? Can you make it shorter? Can you put it in this many words? So on and so forth, right? So it's again, just thinking about like, what, what is, what is your objective? What are you trying to achieve in that response? And again, you don't have to copy and paste it. It's just giving you that it's, uh, you know, that foundation for you to go and start editing. I mean, I, I talked to somebody recently, they were talking about how they're writing a book and it's all because of chat GPT that they are able to go and write the book so quickly. That's cool. Right. So that I can see that like, or especially from the writer's block and, but it's not like you're going to go and just copy and paste it. And, no. uh, and again, we've seen this, like the sources, for instance, it just makes up sources. Right. So this is where, you know, you would go and maybe get a, a good solid uh, outline for uh, some type of project, but then you would have to supplement it and, uh, you know, add in that detail uh, from going and, you know, applying your research skills. Yeah. No, I, I 100% agree. I, I think it's interesting. I, I'm not trying to belittle it. I'm just a little bit, I guess, somewhat skeptical of all these new, uh, all these new positions that are going to be brought in by it. But that's, yeah. that's fair. That's being said. Is there anything we want to say about AI stuff before we move on to the hardware portion of the episode? I don't think so. I mean, the, the only other thing that I think we just didn't cover yet, uh, and it was uh, from back in May, like there was this one article from uh, the Chronicle uh, where the title was, I'm a student. You have no idea how much we're using ChatGPT. No professor or software could ever pick up on it, right? But that's where, again, I think we need to, the technology is there. You can't go and put it back into Pandora's box. And so you just got to accept it. Um, I think there was one thing that, uh, actually one of our colleagues sent this. Um, I'm just going to bring this up. But um, uh, I think one thing that you also have to kind of consider, and it was a good, like, takeaway from, uh, you know, in terms of your assessments. Yeah, so one of the, a colleague of mine here at Mount Royal sent me uh, something from a, a talk that happened on academic integrity. And um, it was the assessments need to prepare the students for their future, not our past. <laughs> and, uh, you know, authentic assessment, uh, they'll provide opportunities to for students to develop evaluative judgment. We need to think deeply about uh, when students need to demonstrate their ability to do something without help from gen AI or otherwise. And if there's uh, other times that they need to do things on their own and uh, do they need to do it on their own uh, all the time or just sometimes. And, uh, you know, should students be allowed to offload certain cognitive tests and which of those tasks and how often. And, uh, you know, again, this is some of the, what we need to go and have those kind of discussions, on, right? So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I see in the future, I mean, I already know people that nobody's admitting that they're using it in the workplace, right? Because it's kind of taboo and there's been many uh, companies that have even boycotted it for certain reasons. Like for instance, Apple and Samsung, they are banning their, uh, workforce from using uh, ChatGPT and others. Uh, Samsung specifically, what happened was that uh, some employees uploaded some 
highly sensitive intellectual property onto ChatGPT, and conceivably now uh, Microsoft has access to that information, so they have completely banned it. I don't know. Maybe the ban is uh, a little bit uh, restrictive, but uh, obviously employers need to have some uh, discussion on policies and how they can use it. I think for certain things, uh, really what's happened is a lot of the tasks that we find menial and not very, um, you know, uh, don't require like kind of that uh, cognitive load. Let's say emails. I think it's a perfectly great application. Oh, yeah, for we're, sure. We're writing like hundreds of emails a day. You're spending tons of time on that. Do you need to go and, uh, you know, use all your uh, brain power for that? Probably not. Right. But if you're going and putting together a six page memo that is going to outline the strategy for your company and, uh, you know, make the, the case for some new product or service that you're launching, you probably want to go and, you know, write a lot of that on your own. I agree. hundred percent. Um, we had some Apple news, uh, that we did not cover that happened since, uh, we recorded our last episode and then we did a rerun episode following that. Cause I was away. Um, so Apple had their WWDC, their worldwide developers conference, and they have some new hardware and new software. And so, uh, there's all sorts of things that we could cover with regards to Apple. Perhaps we should maybe just cherry pick the things that are probably the most useful to our our listeners. So the hardware side, um, I'll start with the least sexy of the things. But Apple released a 15-inch MacBook Air. Yeah. Uh, which, so with the MacBook Air, we've talked about it before. It's a great computer. It's kind of the standard. It's probably the one that most people should go with, not a professional model, um, assuming you get enough memory and hard drive space and you know buy the best one you can afford. But they just released a 15-inch version of it. So now you don't have to buy a pro-level laptop to get a larger screen size. I thought this was quite compelling. I don't know what you thought about it. Well, it's especially for people that want a larger screen, I think it's helpful. I mean, I kind of, uh, if you look at it, like one of the reasons why, I mean, we we got 14 inch was because of that larger screen. And in some ways, I don't know, uh, I think a 15 inch is kind of nice uh, to have the little bit of extra real estate. I think the 16 inch, which was your previous. Uh, it's too big. Uh, you know, it was kind of big, right, to go and carry yeah. around. I think. And I had a 15-inch yeah. previous, too, so I find the 14 is a better travel size, personally. Yeah, so it just depends on your needs. But uh, for I sometimes, I don't know, as a, I'm getting older, I kind of like having the bigger screen. Uh, I was used to the 15-inch, 14-inch. It's uh, not as much real estate, but it yeah, from a portability standpoint, it was good. I think the 13 is kind of small, so having this now, the 15, as an option. But then you have to kind of look at the the price point and and so on, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, so it's a good yeah. if you're in the market for a new laptop and you needed more screen real estate, this is probably the one for you. I'm sure it's available on um, education pricing. I'm I'm, I'm certain it is. Apple yeah, released imagine. something a little bit more exciting. They finally released their. Mixed reality, uh, AI, augmented reality, AR, VR headset 
called Apple Vision Pro. And so there's a lot to say about this. We've talked about VR in the classroom before and how it could be used for teaching and learning. So this is kind of a headset where you can do a virtual reality experience, meaning that you're closed off from the environment. You can watch movies, um, but you can also see through it and see the real world. And you can, and they kind of pitched it as a creative tool and also a productivity device. You know, you had huge windows open like on a Mac, except they were just floating in space. And you just use a yeah. little, you click your thumb and forefinger together, and that's the motion to pinch and drag and click things. And there's like cameras all over the place so it can see your fingers at every angle and you can manipulate it with your hands and stuff like that. It, it sounds like the best version of AR we've had. Um, it was a pretty impressive product. I think from an education standpoint, it's like dead in the water right now because it's 3400 and $99 US. Yeah. Well, uh, to I, start. So I don't, I don't even know, know if it's just even education of how many people are going to spend $3,500 <laughs> just for any kind of headset when I think the next, uh, like a decent one is probably what, like 500 bucks, 400. Yeah. I don't know what the quest, uh, or the meta quest three uh, would be what I would suggest is going to be the better. Um, yeah. well, uh, that, well, the meta the, quest, the quest two is. Yeah, that's pretty old now, though. Yeah, um, I mean it's uh, the meta quest two is four hundred and twenty. So uh, I would spend the quest extra three. I would spend the extra money to get the quest three for five or six hundred or whatever it is. Yeah, and it's coming out four ninety nine US. But sometimes they price Meta has priced it in Canadian dollars, so the Meta Quest is pretty good in my opinion. Uh, so yeah. if you're playing games and stuff like that, which is mostly what people are using VR for, I certainly wouldn't prioritize Apple's model. Apple's is interesting from just its platform. I mean, it runs like an M2 chip, so theoretically, it's a full Macintosh computer on your head, so it'll run all the compatible apps in that kind of environment. Um, so it's because it ties into all their platforms. Um, that's a compelling feature. I don't know what else to really say about it at this point. Uh, other than that, I would encourage people to go watch the introduction video, which we can post in the show notes um, and, you know, and see what Apple's vision is. But it's kind of interesting that they've come out with this very expensive, uh, very niche product. Yeah. Well, and again, I think it's just something that they had to go and put out there. Uh, this is typical when you think about it from a strategy standpoint, if they've invested all this R&D into developing this headset, they have to charge a premium price to just recover that R&D. And only the enthusiasts are going to go and develop something, or uh, those early adopters are going to go and buy it. Sure. Uh, but they've, they've already, uh, some of the news I've seen, they've cut down uh, their production numbers because they're not expecting to sell that many. Um, and I think one of their biggest challenges that they're going to have right now is getting developers to develop apps for the headset, given the price point, because it's going to be a lot of, um, uh, you know, investment on their part for a relatively low return. So, uh, you know, given that the cost of the hardware so much, but, you know, who knows, we'll see in the future. Uh, I was hoping it's funny because it just looked like a ski goggles 
that you would put on that you could see through and uh, it looks cool. It's probably better than uh, other, um, you know, devices out there. But again, it's like seven times the price of what else is out there. Yeah, it's pretty expensive. So yeah, I guess we'll talk more about it. Once people get like, not a lot of people have their hands on it and I haven't actually taken the time to read the first impressions from the tech blogs yet. So I really don't feel comfortable speaking about that. I think we're going to talk about this again next time. It's just something that came out, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you sent a great article actually that had all the updates to iOS 17 and presumably iPad OS 17. Um, there was a couple in here that, that were really interesting. Um, that for productivity that may be useful to education interlinking notes the zettelcast episode is one of our top downloaded <laughs> episodes uh i by the way i have a confession i totally abandoned using uh obsidian because it was just a brutal notes app i find apple notes is just a much simpler thing to use so now that it has this feature it doesn't matter mm-hmm. anymore um there you go. the idea of interlinking notes i don't really create a second brain i don't really care that much about it. In fact, I read a really interesting article that talked about all this productivity stuff and how it was snake oil. And the article said that remembering was for chumps, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, but you know, the, it is helpful to interlink notes, especially if you have things that are kind of related in different sections, that is actually a useful feature. So that was pretty cool. We don't really have anything else left for articles. I did have uh, a, a potential tip that I think you could chime into. Uh, sure. did you want to move on to that? Sure. So I actually, it. I actually got a question from somebody. Uh, I'm currently on vacation, but I, I got a question from someone, which was quite interesting. And it, it, you know, it was basically, um, okay. You know, I don't like Twitter anymore for, uh, you know, potentially, well, maybe not obvious, but reasons, uh, many reasons they don't like using social media. They had, they, this person that has listened to the podcast, they said that they, they were, they liked what we had provided in the past about productivity. So perhaps that's something we can return to, uh, you and I have an interest in that. What's, what's used, what's useful, um, advice versus what's bad advice. And they said, well, what am I, you know, I, I said, well, why does it matter to you? And they said, well, I use Twitter and I don't want to use Mastodon because companies aren't all on it, but I use it as a news feed. So they would follow people that post things, news articles that they're interested in, political figures, news organizations. So clearly Mastodon isn't going to cut it because it's not as ubiquitous, but they said, I don't really want to be on that platform. So what should I do? And I said, well, I can't really help you for the people who individuals who post on Twitter. I mean, that's. I don't think we can import Twitter tweets into an RSS reader, uh, maybe. But my argument or my suggestion was, well, why don't you just move to RSS? And they said, what is that? And then I immediately realized the generation of the person I was talking to, which was younger than me. And so RSS uh, is a way to create a feed. um, uh, So you can kind of paste in all of the... Uh, the websites that you follow and it'll just create a feed of everything in chronological order. And so prior to social media, I mean, I still use an RSS reader. I'm kind of a huge nerd that way, but I I just find it easier than going to all the sites. And then I end up going to the actual sites. I don't like using Google news. 
uh, and adding topics that way or services like that because they always try or Flipboard because they always try to make it some kind of crazy interface and uh, and then they use Google uses Google AMP, which is advanced accelerated mobile pages, which I just find to be a terrible uh, standard. So I I'd rather just go to the site. But I just want to see all the headlines in a row in like a big list of like 100 and I can skim them. So there's an article from uh, from Wired. Um, I mean, there's there's multiple of these. And I'll, if I find any more, I'll add them. Where it basically, you know, says, well, what are the best um, uh, RSS readers? The best one was Google Reader, which was killed about 10 years ago. And there's a really interesting article about... Um, Google Reader and why it was it was removed. Um, but anyways, my recommendation to people would be to find the simplest possible RSS reader and then just start making categories. You could have a news category. I have a tech category, a news category, and you can add um, your favorite sites and you can just quickly see all the headlines. And uh, sometimes they offer summaries of the articles and stuff like that. I don't really know what to recommend for a newsreader. I have historically used Feedly, um, but there's a limit, I believe, to how many um, websites you can add. So, you know, I would be happy with like a pure HTML, no graphics <laughs> feed reader of some sort. Um, but anyways, that's my uh, recommendation at this time for people to use. Use an RSS yeah. reader and don't and don't read comments and don't follow anybody and uh, don't talk to anybody online. Go talk to people in person. Yeah, well, that's that's a good idea. I mean, it's uh, it's unfortunate that actually uh, one of the uh, the people who helped invent that the first version of RSS uh, was Aaron Schwartz. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we I think we've talked about him in the past, but uh, uh, back uh, in 2011, he was actually charged with illegally downloading files from JSTOR and then uploading it off onto the internet. And then because the uh, the uh, attorney general at the time wanted to throw the book at uh, him and make an example of him because he was also uh, behind, uh, I think, was it Reddit? Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyways, he took his own life. So it was a kind of unfortunate, uh, you know, pretty young guy, brilliant uh, individual too if you watch some of the documentaries on them but uh yeah i mean i think that's a, that's a good idea if you people want to go and track things i think the other idea that you know based on you introducing this the, the only other thing that i could think of is maybe going and using uh google uh news right? yeah so it does it, i do use that too and i can i just uh, they won't allow you to add certain sources yeah um Maybe if you read, maybe if you read unsavory sources, uh, Google has censored them. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of what I can and cannot read. So a newsreader doesn't really judge me. I mean, Google News is a good aggregator, though. Yeah. I do like that you can follow topics and it'll try to bring things together. And we, yeah. of course, use it to find articles for our podcast. I'll get it to scrape things for ed tech and stuff like that. Uh, no, for sure. Actually, you know, from a productivity standpoint, I can't remember if we actually talked about this. Uh, I know we've talked about this off offline, but uh, 
you know, given that we're talking about tips and you, you mentioned that, you know, there's some people that are interested from a productivity standpoint. Uh, but one thing that I noticed was uh, I saw this uh, tip that somebody suggested on your smartphone. If you go and make the screen to grayscale, you'll use it less. And I thought it was kind of interesting. So it's under on my iPhone anyways, and I would imagine there's something similar on the Android platform. But if you go under accessibility options, you can go and change it to grayscale. And uh, I kid you not, Eric, like my data or my screen time actually went down just because hmm. of that. Just that one change because, uh, and this is where if you recall, there is uh, a lot of what they're using in like casinos, uh, colors and so on, like especially even having the notification being red uh, for things that are popping up. It, you know, there is this natural human tendency that you're gonna go and check it out right away, right? That instant kind of gratification. And so when you turn it to grayscale, you don't see any of it. Everything's the same color. Oh, and, hang on a uh, second. So what is the, how do you do that? So you go into accessibility. So if you go under your settings, so just go to settings and uh, then you put in, uh, what is it? Accessibility. So you go under accessibility and then you see how there's, uh, what is it? Yeah, so you go under next uh, from there. So you go under accessibility, display and text size. Okay. Then you go to color filters. Oh, okay. And then you turn that, uh, you check it off, and then you can go to grayscale. Hmm. Yeah, so that's that's the way to do it. So, and then, yeah, I mean, because everything's all monochrome, like you don't see any of the notifications. And, uh, and here's another tip, which it might seem kind of obvious. If you're doing some work, just don't have your phone in front of you. <laughs> Put it away, like physically away from you. Like in a and, drawer. Uh, like in a drawer or something, right? Like it's just, again, it's a psychological aspect because it's there. There's this, it's almost like I describe it as a phantom limb uh, where it's there. You, you know, when you kind of think about it, all of a sudden you're going to go and uh, start looking at it. But yeah, I think the, the grayscale thing was a really smart, easy kind of step. And uh, I would encourage people just give it a shot, give it a try um, and uh, see what happens. But I, I think you will notice that it'll cut down on your screen time just because it is in that grayscale. It just doesn't seem as exciting when it's not in color uh, for anything, even let's say your social media posts, if you're going on, if uh, for those who have like apps and stuff, like it just doesn't uh, have the same kind of oomph to it. Have you seen... Um... This is a totally not relevant to your thing, but I think it's it's it is relevant in the sense that you're talking about not having things in front of you. Um, you know, here's ways to just dis not distract yourself. I also think it's interesting to think about all of the apps and services that we don't need to use and how often that they're killed and they steal all our data because we started this conversation with privacy and stuff like that. And so mm -hmm. I would like to tie this all together by sharing with everybody the Google graveyard or killedbygoogle.com, which is a list of 288 web services that Google has started and then discontinued. Yeah, and the latest one was uh, Google domains, eh? Yeah. So 
I look at this occasionally and go, hmm, do I really want to invest in this new platform and put all my content there and then it'll be discontinued? So the fewer things you have on your phone and the fewer services you use, the less likely you'll pick it up. But with yeah, that, no, I, sorry. Sure. Yeah, no, for sure. I think there's something to be said to just being a little bit of a, a minimalist. I love it. Delete apps, delete them all. Um, <laughs> but with that, I think we're probably call it a day. So, um, Chris, how can people get in contact with you? Should they wish? If anybody wants to get a hold of me, you can check me out on my website. It's Chris with a K, K R I S, Hans, H A N S dot C A. And I uh, am Eric Christensen, and all my all my stuff is at ericchristensen.net. Uh, I don't have a dot. I do have a dot ca. It forwards to that, um, and dot org also forwards to that. I don't have dot com. Somebody's sitting on it, and they haven't built anything. Someday I'll get it. <laughs> uh, I don't have anything to share. Uh, my my tech bytes website is no longer. Uh, I decided to close it and I'm starting the development of a new one. So I will, I will share the domain uh, at the end of the next episode or whenever it is I, I have that ready to go because I'm still building okay. it. You're changing the name too, or just? Everything's new, man. I got oh, the new domain. Okay. All right. I, I did not do the noob thing that I did uh, 12 years ago, which is choose a domain with a hyphen in it. I chose a domain that doesn't have tech in the title, so I can write about other things. All these things, oh, cool. foresight, foresight of experience. Uh, cool. So yes. So no, I'm I'm working on a new website because I don't like to blog on my personal site. That's just kind of a hub. So, yeah. Well, sounds good. I hope you have a great rest of your afternoon, and I'll catch you next time. Yeah, for sure. It's always a pleasure. Ciao you can learn more about edtech examined by going to our website edtechexamined.com there you'll find ways to subscribe as well as host information our social media accounts and our blog posts our blog posts are also published through medium on the edtech examined publication you can contact edtech examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an edtech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag edtechofficehours. You can find edtechexamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at edtechexamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time. <laughs>